Hey, I'm Brittany Absher, and welcome to The Proof of Plant-Based Living, where you'll find out how food can change our lives, the real power of nutrition. With the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies, we'll unravel the complex mystery of why health eludes some and embraces others. Through expert interviews, we'll uncover the research, explaining why we're unnecessarily sick, why too many of us die early despite trillions spent in healthcare, and why a system that's supposed to help us often hurts us. And we'll share stories of hope from real people who took back control of their health simply by changing their diet, reversing heart disease, diabetes, and even cancer. Your health is in your own hands and you can save your own life. This is the proof of plant-based living. I want to welcome everybody to episode number one of The Proof of Plant-Based Living. Joining me for our pilot episode, of course, we couldn't have anybody else other than the men behind the groundbreaking book, The China Study, which is the most comprehensive study of nutrition ever conducted. So joining me, we have nutrition researcher T. Colin Campbell and his son, physician Dr. Thomas Campbell. Thank you both for being here today. We'll start with Colin because so much of your research over the past several decades has centered on cancer. So that's the topic we're really exploring today for our first episode. There's really not likely a single person watching this that hasn't been touched by this disease in some way and the turmoil that it causes. But I think what's really important here is that there is profound evidence that it really doesn't have to be this way necessarily. And that can give a lot of people hope. So Colin, let's, we have so much to cover here, but let's start with this question. Um, through your research, have you found a cure or at least have we been able to establish that there are ways to prevent or even reverse cancer? Well, you know, with the way we study this question, at least the laboratory, at least in my laboratory and others too, working on this, we tend to focus, let's say on one cancer at a time and oftentimes you have know, one nutrient at a time and so forth. And so our work is very focused. Um, and so the question then arises, you know, does that really apply to other cancers? Does it apply in humans, for example, if you're doing experimental animal work? Those are good questions. Uh, so it's hard to just make a broad sweeping statement about all the cancers, although so far the nutritional effect on various and sundry cancers from my perspective appears to be about the same. Some are more prominent than others and the, the data are more robust than others. But in our studies in the laboratory, in this case involving something really narrowly focused, uh, it was liver cancer. Um, basically, and studying one nutrient at the time, that was of all things, animal protein. We saw some things. We probed that question in quite some depth over the years. And in that process, um, we learned, for example, that animal protein turns on the growth of that cancer quite remarkably and quickly. And secondly, uh, we also saw that we could turn on the development of that cancer in the course of time. Uh, and also done quickly, when you increase animal protein, it increases, you decrease it, it decreases, and so forth. And so we learned a lot of things. So to answer your question, uh, I, the only way I can do it is to talk about the details of my own experiment in this case uh, and try to extrapolate to the whole, but other data from other perspectives, other points of view tend to support the idea. Yeah, diet is important, really important. Tom, I was going to turn it over to you because so many people, you know, we're, we're focusing on the nutrition as it relates to cancer. So many people don't really think that that has much to do with it. They tend to think that cancer is a result of genetics or bad luck. 
so how much in your opinion is that really to do with it? Well, it's a little hard to say. I think if you look at the data um, for strict genetic related conditions, like let's say the BRCA genes or Lynch syndrome, for example, only about five to 10% of cancers are due to genes. So that suggests that the rest of cancers may have a bigger um, environmental influence. So there's a lot of uncertainties with that, but those are kind of the, the numbers to start. Yeah, five to 10% is a pretty low number. And, and that, but that's another thing people think, you know, if it's has to do with environmental factors, then that really has to do with the chemicals that we're exposed to. So what we're breathing in every day, what we're putting on our bodies. So how much is that really to do with it? Um, you know, I guess when it at least comes to the initiation of cancer and how much is it with nutrition that, that could be building some of this? Well, if you look at some of the early uh, data, some of the research we have that under, to, to understand this environmental influence of cancer, when we say environmental influence of cancer, what I mean by, by that is basically uh, the possibility that anything that, that we get exposed to may affect our cancer risk. That includes nutrition, um, that includes environmental chemicals like pesticides or herbicides or so forth. That includes nutrition and activity, uh, air quality, that type of thing, um, occupational exposures and that type of thing. And if you look at the early data, what we call migrant data, you can look uh, at, at populations of people, for example, who historically have had very low rates of cancer they move from a population that has a very low risk to a population that has a high risk. Let's say Japanese women moving to San Francisco in the US. They quickly adopt the rate, the risk of breast cancer similar to what, their, uh, what the American baseline is, what their white Caucasian uh, counterparts have. So that suggests that there's something in the environment. Now, to get to your question in terms of the, you know, what is it in the environment, um, we can't tell from that early data, but certainly using my dad's experiments and, and other animal research and other background, it seems that nutrition is a uh, probably a, prime, a much more primary influence than, say, uh, environmental chemicals. I'm not a fan of environmental chemicals, herbicides, pesticides, that type of thing. Um, but I, I, I think that evidence is fairly flimsy that that's a major cause of cancer it's really probably more related to um, uh, diet, uh, of course, tobacco. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are the biggies. And, and then um, the other ones are, are much, much less uh, of a contributor. Yeah, which is very interesting. And it gives a lot of people hope. On that note, we can go back to, Colin, some of your research into this. And so decades ago when you were studying this and you, you touched on it with liver cancer, what you did in your experiment, if people aren't familiar, was that you um, had studied, you were studying lab rats and you initiated cancer with a chemical called aflatoxin. And from there, you were able to manipulate the cancer by how much animal protein you were feeding these rats. So talk about that experiment a little bit. And I mean, that's one of the most compelling things, I think, when we look at the China study and your research in that is being able to almost turn it on and turn it off. 
Yeah, you're correct. Uh, back when I started this work in, in the 60s, actually, uh, at that time, the uh, the most common, uh, the, the belief that the most common cause of cancer, so the story went, was aflatoxin. It's a mold toxin. A lot of research groups are working on that question from various assembly countries. Uh, so it was done in two in experimental animals. And so I used that aflatoxin. It's a, it's a metabolite of a fungus that actually initiates the cancer growth to begin with. And it does it by the chemical itself being metabolized, but enzyme that creates a product that in a sense zaps our DNA or DNA, the gene, the DNA in the genes causing a mutation. And so that fit right in with the narrative in general for others studying this work too. Cancer starts with a gene, yes. Uh, you know, stim uh, uh, damaged, if you will, uh, by chemicals of various and sundry source, but also by a virus, by the way, uh, a virus in this particular case. And so uh, then following that, that is not all there is to the, the determination of risk, obviously. Um, what we learned was that even though we started it with a very potent carcinogen, on the one hand, when we uh, fed protein thereafter, uh, as I said before, we can turn cancer on quickly. I mean, we could see changes in a matter of what turned out to be an enzyme activity within a day or two. So we could turn it off, turn it on. And then of course, decreasing that or replacement plant protein, we could turn it off. Um, and eventually the aflatoxin story sort of went away uh, for the most part, not completely, not completely, and became a rather debatable just for some years. But uh, now, just because in our hands, at least the nutritional effect was so much more prominent than the uh, genetic effect caused by that aflatoxin, if you will. So that was exciting. Um, and of course we mm -hmm. learned too how it worked and all that sort of thing. But Was it just animal protein that you saw this with? Because I know you manipulated it by feeding them plant protein as well. So talk about the difference there. Well, the, all proteins are composed of, uh, you know, chains of amino, amino acids. And as we know, and there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 22 or so amino acids that are available to form these long chains. And even with that number of amino acid possibilities, we can have, you know, composition or strings of amino acids of almost infinite variety. Um, and it turns out that animal proteins have, um, some common things with each other in terms of the string of amino acids. But most commonly, the one that most ta is talked about is that there's an amino acid called, uh, uh, it's one of the sulfur amino acids that causes acidic condition in the body. I don't want to get too much into the detail of this, but the difference between the plant and animal proteins uh, on that basis is a little tricky to try to tease apart. But what is not so what was more apparent on the other hand, if we use those two kinds of protein, animal protein on one hand, plant protein on another, I'm talking about those two different groups of proteins, uh, it turns out when they're tested in other kinds of experiments, like, you know, their ability to turn on cholesterol uh, metabolism, all the animal proteins tend to act like each other, and the plant mm -hmm. proteins tend to act like each other. But we can't tell, we, we can't narrow that down to telling exactly which amino acid does what. In fact, I don't believe that's probably true anyhow. 
It's a combination of all these working together. But there are measured distinctions between animal and plant protein as to their effects. Of that, it's virtually indisputable. Tom, as a physician, I'm sure that you see cancer patients walk through your door. Do you treat patients, you know, with a plant-based diet during diagnosis? How do you, you know, handle that or counsel them in those situations? Well, so we're doing a uh, randomized controlled trial, a pilot study of women with advanced breast cancer actually right now. And, um, you know, to answer your question, I, I think it's, uh, we don't have enough data to say that nutrition treats um, cancer and, and if it does, what are the effects and, you know, what uh, benefit may, how big of a benefit it may have um, or, you know, what types of cancer. So we don't, there's been just really kind of a lack of research. So we're hoping to address that with our with our uh, study now, what I uh, commonly tell people is that um, you know certainly conventional therapy. I mean, go to your, go into your oncologist office and consider conventional therapy, and sort of leave nutrition outside the door, in the sense that we don't know exactly what you know who it's going to affect and, and how much it's going to do. So consider conventional therapy, and there's lots of reasons why you'd want to do that or not do that, and and have that conversation. But then after you walk out the door, I strongly advise people to think of an adjunct in, in an adjunctive way of using good nutrition. And um, mm. because if you look at this background research, you know, the observational data, the animal data, uh, very limited sort of uh, human uh, uh, data, mechanistic data, that type of thing. If you look at that research, it's a very strong suggestion that nutrition may have a, a, a strong impact on the progression of cancer. Uh, we just don't have the kind of the linchpin data to know um, you know, the details of, of how it might work or how much it might work. But I think it's important to, to uh, you know, consider, obviously, uh, you know, your oncologist recommendations and, 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 uh, and go with those, but also, uh, you know, use nutrition as treatment as a very important adjunctive, adjunctive uh, approach. I'd like to add a comment to that. Um, you know, one of the unique things about Tom's uh, study is, incidentally, as he just indicated, uh, and this is quite unique, I must tell you, too, is that back then he's using a whole diet. He's not focused on mm -hmm. just one thing, you know, in that uh, package, you know, in those foods, obviously, it's all working together. That runs counter to all this, almost all the studies that have done over history, you know, these kind of studies. We do these randomized controlled trials, intervention trials, we sometimes call them, where the intervention is a single nutrient or single, single drug or whatever the case may be. Um, and so we just look at one thing and try to identify how it works and it either works or doesn't work. The whole idea, that's, that's the a fundamental practice in these kinds of studies is using one thing like that, randomized controlled mm -hmm. trials. The idea of using food, a whole bunch of things all working together, that's kind of foreign to most of my colleagues in this business. Uh, to be able to do that. And as a result, that kind of study has not been done, basically. And I think Tom's study is, is really quite remarkable in that sense. That will give us a, a peek, if you will, at what uh, diet really might do as a whole, as the whole food. I think that's really a really significant point to make. 
Right. Yeah. We always want to seem to break it down and to see, you know, how much calcium do we need? How much vitamin D do we need? How that relates to the body? So it will be really interesting to see, you know, Tom, more to your study. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're doing with your study? Well, um, you know, it's we're looking at advanced uh, breast cancer, uh, women with advanced breast cancer. So stage four metastatic cancer, um, which is, uh, uh, of course, the most serious uh, diagnosis with a with a relatively low uh, survival rate over the over the next five years uh, after diagnosis. And um, we are it's just a pilot study. So we're looking this type of thing hasn't been done before in a robust way. So we're really looking at, you know, if you have women on conventional therapy and you change their diet dramatically, you know, what's the experience of recruiting these women? What's the experience of uh, getting folks to change their diet at this point? What's the, are there any adverse effects, this type of thing? So really basic questions, that's, that's what I call a pilot study. Um, but these basic questions need to be answered to be able to design sort of longer, bigger studies uh, looking at survival outcomes and that type of thing. So we're sort of sort of on the first stage of any sort of, um, and this is you know typical of, of how this type of uh, question would be asked. Um, you need some background data to understand, you know, if you can recruit these women and, and what the initial um, response is, what the early response is. So uh, the feasibility uh, of doing a project like that. So we're 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 at these uh, sort of this early stage at this point. Okay. And, you know, it, it will be interesting and we'll see how much we find out from your study and future studies, but are, does it seem like that there are certain cancers that are maybe more treatable when it relates to diet as opposed to others? Does it seem like there's a stage in cancer that you reach that it can't really be treated by changing your diet or is it too early to even know those things? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer first with that. I think um, if you look at types of cancer, I mean, there are certain cancers that we consider more Western cancers or affluent cancers. These are kind of the biggies, really. I mean, uh, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, uh, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, uh, endometrial cancer. These are, uh, in some cases, hormonally related cancers or, um, you know, digestive system uh, cancers that are more common in, in affluent countries. So you can look, again, looking at this background data, this observational data as people and populations change their diet um, and start eating a more Western diet, these cancers become more common, suggesting that it's possible that these are more related to diet and nutrition. Uh, this is in contrast, for example, to say gastric cancer or liver cancer. Gastric cancer can be re more related to widespread infection of H. pylori, or liver cancer can be more related to widespread infection with hepatitis, which both of those uh, infections can cause cancer. So that's, you know, less likely, I think, sort of a nutritional experience. So that in terms of types of cancer, I think there are certain affluent cancers. And then in terms of, you know, we, do we know if it's if there's a point where it's too late, I, I think it's likely to be true. This is just my own personal hunch. I think it's likely to be true um, as opposed to cardiovascular disease or atherosclerotic heart disease, heart disease based on blockages in the arteries. 
you can take people in that disease and, and at very late stages and have dramatic effects uh, with people with heart disease due to blockages in their arteries uh, with nutrition. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I think nutrition, I think cancer is going to be a little bit of a, a tougher nut to crack. I think, I think cancer is, if you look at some of the, that same background research, you know, how much nutri nutrition may affect it. I, I personally think, and this probably is a difference with my dad's opinion, I, I personally think uh, cancer is going to be a little tougher battle. And, um, you know, there's going to be maybe some people that benefit and, and others who don't, uh, particularly, um, you know, depending on their stage. But we don't know those details yet. Tom's correct. You know, we, we, we can't we got to be careful of getting out in front of the data. Uh, and uh, this kind of study, as I mentioned before, is, hasn't been done in a rigorous fashion in the laboratory and so forth and so on. Yet, on the other hand, we have some data really, really provocative. I mean, I can speak about liver cancer, the one I'm most familiar with. Uh, and in that particular case, as we mentioned before, it always was assumed that aflatoxin was the thing that caused liver cancer. And th there was some tremendous support for that, supposedly, at the time. Uh, we actually analyzed in a study in China that we did, the big study a lot of people know about, we analyzed uh, aflatoxin and its relationship to liver cancer in three different ways. Really quite a robust kind of analysis in a way. It was a population of about uh, 3,500 people uh, at that point. Uh, and what we found was that aflatoxin was not related. There was no evidence that was related at all, to be honest about it, which was also consistent with what some others had done too, although they hadn't quite interpreted quite that way. But at the same time, we also looked at some other things about that cancer, and we found a remarkable effect of nutrition. No effect of the aflatoxin, but a remarkable effect of the nutrition. It was, so pro it was so pronounced, and this is information we just recently published, to show that, in fact, the kind of diet that, let's say, uh, represses heart disease or reverses it, is basically the same kind that, uh, in this particular case, uh, uh, had had an effect on uh, liver cancer. The question is, you know, how is that nutrition really working? We what we saw was people consuming either a small amount of animal food in the form of meat protein, for example, measured some other ways too. Uh, only a small amount, you know, was highly correlated with the liver cancer itself. Uh, and also correlate with the fact that the virus retained its activity, the prevalence of the virus. In contrast, people consuming plants, they, they did not get the liver cancer, and they had a robust effect on causing antibodies. So, when, when, and the reason I'm going this, I may say I'm straying a bit on this point, but the point is we see this striking difference, really, really striking difference. Uh, you know, in epidemiological data that was confirmed in the laboratory, we did the same thing with the with the thing in the laboratory. So I put all that together and I said, why don't we, you know, why don't we get on? Why don't we know this a little bit more? Right. And that's the kind of thing, that kind of research hasn't been done. So on the other right. hand, I can get excited about your possibilities, but I can't get excited about the, obviously about the, uh, about going out and projecting, you know, exactly what we're going to find. Difficult to get funding for these studies, and that's a whole other topic. But um, you know, I am curious to see where your differences lie uh, when it comes to you know more conventional forms of therapy. When it comes to cancer, so you know we see the chemotherapy and radiation, and you know things that can have some pretty detrimental effects on people's health. 
just through that. Um, and Colin, I know when I read the China study also, you touched on, um, you know, that you get questions sometimes from mothers even who they know that their daughters have this breast cancer gene. And so we know that a lot of women tend to take the route of prevention and getting preventative mastectomies and things like that. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, do you guys differ on how much we should rely on nutrition as opposed to some of these more conventional therapies that we see in hospitals today? Yeah, I think there probably is a little difference. You know, I, 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 um, there are limits to what food can treat, right? <laughs> I mean, I, that shouldn't be a controversial statement, but it, it may be a little uh, uh, surprise. <laughs> to, I'm, I'm a great proponent of whole food plant-based nutrition, but uh, it, it doesn't fix everything. So I want, I'm what I call, uh, I, I call myself an all of the above physician. So if there's some benefit from conventional therapy, whether it's chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery, go ahead and take it. And then also use whole food plant-based nutrition. I approach that way with with uh, all of the all of the conditions I treat and work on work with on uh, work on with people. Um, I think that uh, I think that there's there is evidence that our conventional approaches have yielded some benefit. If you look at the uh, overall mortality from our cancer from some of our common cancers, breast cancer, uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, prostate cancer, you see that from the 90s on till now, the death rate from these cancers has gone down dramatically. Um, you know, and I would say, when I say dramatic, I mean anywhere in the ballpark, 30, 40, 50 percent um, around there. And, and, you know, that's not because we're getting healthier, or <laughs> it's the opposite. We're all, we're all getting sicker, but something about the way we're treating these um, cancers is, is, or screening or, or, or treatment is, seems to be working. So, I say, you know, use everything at your disposal. This is not, uh, you know, this isn't a sore ankle. This is this is a life-threatening thing. So um, I'm I'm certainly uh, happy to to suggest and recommend that people do an all of the above approach. I'm going to uh, to actually uh, uh, take a slightly different stance on that. You know, as a researcher, we can ask any question we want to ask. We can hypothesize whatever we feel like hypothesizing, but the burden of proof, of course, when we make a statement like that, we got to prove it, essentially. So that's what it's all about. Uh, and uh, as I say, from the research literature point of view, there's one thing that we can't seem to do in the laboratory or in the clinic, I should say, and that is to test the diet all by itself on a group of people with cancer. I mean, I think the many people in the public, well, why don't you just trust diet alone? You know, just why don't you destroy that? Uh, well, quite frankly, that's uh, that no-no. Uh, uh, you know, they, that would never pass the institutional review board uh, procedures that are required for testing on humans. Um, and so we, as a result, have to be very, very conservative about what can be said. But as a scientist, you know, thinking outside the box a bit, I can make some statements that, you know, why not? Why can't we just try that? If people want, if they want to volunteer to do that, we'll let them volunteer. I know I'm, you know, no one agrees with me in the clinic setting that be somehow leading people to believe there might be something there. But if people are volunteering, you know, I mean, it's just for one, I just got this paper here this morning, as a matter of fact. I'll read you this one statement about primary and secondary prevention of breast cancer. I'll read the whole sentence. 
It is estimated that nearly 70% of malign tumors are caused by environmental factors, whereas in breast cancer, this percentage reaches 90 to 95%. Boy, when I see those kind of numbers like that, and I've seen it elsewhere, but the fact that this is fairly recent uh, and a study of that sort, you know, say 90, 95% of cancers are environmental, you know, diet obviously being one or one of the major ones, uh, I find that exciting. Sure, it's, it's uh, a cause for, for, you know, it's it, the tragedy of the situation is that here we are in 2021, and 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 I'm still saying that this hasn't had a thorough, you know, human investigation with nutritional uh, therapy. It's crazy, you know. Some of this background research has been around for 70 years, and uh, the idea that that we have not had a, a really a thorough investigation of how nutrition affects diagnosed cancer is nuts. Because there's all this background research to suggest that environmental factors matter a great deal, including, of course, nutrition. So, um, yeah, no, I think I think it's uh, all of that background stuff makes me a great proponent for nutrition and and makes me very excited to test it and recommend it and enthousi enthusiastic uh, to recommend it. But um, but, you know, we, we do have to acknowledge, of course, the limits of what's known. And and certainly right now, unfortunately, the tragedy is that that uh, women get a, a terrible diagnosis in the case of breast cancer, some men, but but mostly women, uh, terrible diagnosis of breast cancer, for example, and they go and ask their doctor, you know, what should I be eating? And the doctor mm -hmm. shrugs their shoulders and says, you know, I, I don't know, because there's no, there's no good human intervention uh, studies. That's, I think that's a, that's a, a, a tragedy because you know, that we've had this background research for so long to suggest that matters. I was making reference to about the, uh, how long it takes us, you know, it's insane and so forth and so on. Uh, I had actually learned of a study that was done on, was a study intended study done on breast cancer, uh, a dietary change. The ch change was called a vegetarian diet. This is a doctor in the early 1800s, like 1805 to 1810, 1815, that period. He actually proposed, he was a doctor per, for Percy Bysshe Shelley, the famous poet at the time, but set that aside for a minute. Uh, he was at a very prominent hospital, Middlesex Hospital in London, which was the big one at the time. He actually had become a vegetarian, so-called, when he was 18 years old. I have no reason why he did that, but he discovered great benefit. Then he became a doctor. And he had some cancer patients. And he wanted to try this uh, so-called vegetarian diet on his breast cancer patients. Mind you, this is about 1810. He put a proposal together. I read the proposal. It's in the libraries. I got a copy of it. He turned it into the authorities. He says, I want to do this. He was turned down. He came back and wrote it a second time. I also read the second paper, too. He was really confident there was maybe something here, possibly because of his own experience. They turned him down again. And no study like that has ever been done since, until Tom's. Mm -hmm. You know, that's 200, what is that, you know, 210, 15 years ago. Talking about change, you know, being slow about taking up uh, ideas like this. I thought that was a fantastic illustration of our you know, reluctance to yeah. you know, think out loud. It's interesting too, and I'm sure you guys get this question a lot when we look at it. And I know there have not been enough studies done and, and we've talked about that, but there is evidence 
Um, and, and, you know, Colin, you just brought up that recent study and, and you know, we've, we've seen through your research and we've also heard of all of these studies that come out that, you know, tell you to not do this or to do this based on far less information. So if there is, you know, at least some really good evidence showing that you can prevent or treat some cancers in some way with a plant-based diet. Why aren't we hearing more about this? Why aren't media outlets talking about it? Why aren't some policies changing? Why does it seem like we don't hear much about it? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, it's it's tied in with the question, why, why hasn't there been more research, right? I mean, it's a natural, we should be, we should have been doing research on this uh, decades ago. Um, and I think it's just because there's numerous factors, but you know, it comes down to our system of, of uh, food in this country and our system of medicine in this country is not aligned with uh, using nutritional approaches. So our system of food in this country uh, pushes the most unhealthy uh, processed food that you can possibly find on planet earth. And then, on the on the on the back end, once we get ill, our system of medicine, uh, you know, re provides compensation for uh, drugs and procedures, and you know, medical care to to pump people into drugs and procedures. And like I said, I'm not a I'm not against those things, but you know, that's where the profit is. So you come along and say, well, let's let's talk about food. And suddenly everybody's looking at their budgets and saying, well, gosh, I don't know. Is there, there's no, there's no money. Are we going to lose money here? Are we going to, you know, <laughs> we're going to lose money there, you know? And, 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 and then you have, because of this encompassing environment that pushes us in the wrong, to make the wrong lifestyle, you know, nutrition and lifestyle choices. Um, most people are, are making just terrible uh, diet and lifestyle choices. And, you know, there's a there's sort of an appeal to that. We know about the the pleasure centers of of the, of the brain and sort of the hyper processed foods and uh, taste adaptation and all this type of thing. So you consequently, nobody hears about healthy nutrition. Everybody likes to eat tons of sugar, salt, and fat, and the general population isn't consequently terribly interested. And it becomes all this reinforcing cycle, um, you know, over and over and over of of an audience that is uh, is somewhat unwilling to hear it, and then uh, people who create our environment through policy and, and and food policy and medical policy and and paradigms there that that then reinforces the entire structure of confusion, um, you know, poor health choices and poor health, and it's it's very profitable for the people who are creating that environment. So. It's a complicated question, obviously, with a lot of parts and a lot of details in there. But um, you know, we have a we have a system right now that um, we we eat food uh, that makes us sick, and then once we're sick, you know, we're, we're our, our illnesses are sort of harvested for um, profit by by the newest medication, and you know, turn on the TV in the in the evening, and you get um, drug commercial after drug commercial after drug commercial, you know, it's just, it's, it's like, you know, make money at the, at the front end while we're getting sick and then you make money. It's a very good system for making money. <laughs> so, you know, threatening that with food is, is a, is a challenge. Uh, it's a good, very good point Thomas making, you know, we, we're working with a system and, you know, with, with, wherein, uh, there are major forces that, you know, have alternative interests than let's just simply say health. 
we make money is one of them, obviously. But you know, there's another one. I, I'm a great, I'm a great believer in this idea of paradigms, and that was written very, quite famously by a man by the name of Thomas Kuhn back in the 1960s. The Scientific Revolution, I think, it was called. Uh, so I, I've gotten back into the history on on, on some of this stuff, and, and really caught up in that. And I would argue that we're living in a paradigm. You know, I'm trying to say something without blaming anyone at this point. It's just simply a way of thinking. Back in the 1800s, cancer was regarded as being uh, caused by and later being treated by a single agent. That was called the local theory of disease. That was prominent in the middle 1800s. There were great debates between that view and the other view, which is constitutional nature of disease. Something grand is going on in the body to work together, if you will. That's where nutrition would have come into play. Unfortunately, the first model one, that is, you know, looking at one thing at a time, finding one mechanism, one cancer, that kind of thing, that 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 uh, became the the centerpiece of the entire corporate world, you know, going into the 1900s, and then became part of the industries to which I'm just referred. You know, we, we like to think of targeted drug therapy. We like to think of single things causing something. That, that local theory of disease really got a foothold into our entire system of thinking. I'm not talking just about professionals or research <laughs> societies. I'm talking about, obviously, businesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then we, we follow on that. We tack, tack on to that policy development which tends to represent the, the uh, corporate interests. So we all live in this environment that we're kind of all sharing and let's see, uh, our lack of knowledge and sharing some blame if we just knew what we were missing. But we're living in a system where we just think that we can get a very specific solution to all these major complicated problems. When in reality, that's why I got excited about nutrition because there you've got infinite numbers of things all working together in a certain class of foods that uh, I, I, I get very attracted by that idea. And it just so happens mm -hmm. plant-based foods, they have all the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Animal-based foods don't, uh, we, we eat that to get the protein, but we don't need that protein. We get all the protein we need from plants. Right. So, you know, you got this dichotomy going two ways and we're all caught in it. And we don't know what we don't know for a lot of us. I, I didn't know any of this stuff either. You know, when I was getting involved in it. And, but uh, it's, it's really kind of fun. I think it's important to note, Colin, that you went into this years and years ago, not trying to prove that a plant-based diet was the way to go, no that way. you've, you discovered this, you know, along the way. In fact, you grew up on a dairy farm. And so you had the same mindset that most Americans and people across the world have today is that animal protein and, and milk are the best things you can put in your body. Absolutely. And throw in some eggs along with it. Always had a boiled egg in the morning and, you know, so forth. I mean, that's, that, that's the name of the game. You've been mm -hmm. on a farm. So I was up to, to the top of my head on this. And uh, my early training and my early teaching, in fact, was on the same, had the same theme. But then I got shocked with some stuff that I, you know, <laughs> couldn't quite believe. It's important to talk about where can we go from here? 
too. And Colin, you you just released a book late last year called The Future of Nutrition. So what do what do we do? How do we get this message out there? How can we share this with more people? How do we supposedly even seem to sort of fix this broken system that we have? Well, I could, you know, sit here and opine and give, give all kinds of thoughts, uh, in fact. But, you know, I'm going to say it's the younger people, um, really, that need to catch on. And, and Tom is a, uh, uh, we have to say, he's, he's in a perfect position. You're someone with that degree of training, with that sort of understanding of this new area, quite frankly, too, that really measure it. And uh, so people at that age group and younger, um, they're the ones going to have to carry the ball. But somehow, then the question arises, well, how do you get younger people to know this? I mean, I, I became a, you know, much older and I was gradually learning along the way with lots of colleagues. And so I had to benefit of that kind of thing. But in reality, the younger people need to know this. They certainly have the enthusiasm. They certainly have the ingenuity a lot of times and, and that sort of stuff to do that. But uh, and so it comes down to education. It really comes down to education. And by education, I'm not talking about just education in a school system or in a medical system. I'm talking about the the education of the public in the, in the form of policy and that sort of thing. So it's just, we have to think about transformative, I guess you could say that word, transformative uh, knowledge. Some, some kind of knowledge that is told at a reasonably fundamental level so people can get excited about it and, and then start acting on it and studying it and either confirming or denying it, whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, I think knowledge is, is very, very important. Yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, and this is a testament to my own career choices. I think research is a logical next step to understand you know, how, how diet may impact uh, human cancer. But even bigger than that, that's a very small little corner of this picture, you know, and uh, in terms of diet and cancer, we have enough data, whether it's just looking at metabolic disease, diabetes, uh, weight problems, uh, heart disease, kidney disease, these types of things. We have enough data to know that uh, nutrition is paramount to um, to health. And, the, the, you know, regardless of the uncertainties of nutri- nutrition as treatment in advanced cancer or cancer, you know, diagnosed cancer, all of this other stuff is known, and yet we aren't really acting on it. So there's a bigger question of how do we act on this bigger question, this bigger, you know, this, this importance of nutrition, how do we get that into the population? And uh, certainly there's been a lot of movement um, since we wrote the China study from 2005 to 2021, I mean, I, I can't believe you can go through a Dunkin' Donuts drive-through and see a plant-based, you know, uh, fake meat thing, and it says plant-based everywhere. Um, I mean, that's just crazy compared to the world we lit, we we were in when we wrote the China study. I'm not saying that's uh, particularly healthy, but <laughs> you know it's a changing environment. So, so things are changing, and there's more and more people sort of open and interested to plant-based nutrition. But on the whole, things have gotten worse. Everybody in the American population is eating worse. If you look at every single metric, nutrition choices are just getting worse. So there's a bigger question 
other than just reaching sort of the enthusiastic uh, people who want to be educated, how do we reach the greater population? And the elephant really in that effort is public health. The elephant in that in the room there is changing our environment, changing our built environment so that healthier choices are cheaper and easier and more convenient. And medical approaches integrate nutrition, whether we decide, whether we um, consciously choose to or not, it's like automatic nutrition gets. And so why isn't that happening? And then you get into this question of, well, that's public policy, government, and uh, more corporate corporate control. The people who are profiting on this, off the system are now making the rules for those policies. So of course, they're not going to change this current system. And, you know, I, I, I feel myself getting kind of revolutionary as I broaden this picture even beyond nutrition and health and medicine. And the little tiny bits that I learn about the world of finance or energy, you know, other big industries, it seems like the same kind of shenanigans have been going on across the across the spectrum of large industries and corporate power in the U.S. and in the world. And so then then this becomes a question, <laughs> you know, this is like true revolution now where we have to, uh, you know, go after the corporate power structure to uh, to, to make policy that's actually in the best interests of, of, of the population, as opposed to the best interest in the, in the profit of, of the few. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, that's a whole other conversation that I'm, that I'm now getting into there. Hey, Tom, why don't you, uh, you know, share some ideas too about your experience, because you've been working intensively in this area, your experience with patients, your groups of patients. You know, and just coming and talking to them and doing things like that, because, you know, if doctors across the country could do what you were doing, you know, however successful or unsuccessful it may have been, uh, talk about that a little bit about, uh, you know, doctors becoming the the, the uh, person in a community, for example, joining some others to get people to try it. Well, Can I think say, say I think. I think further, there's an interested minority of people who are open-minded to changing their diet dramatically if it affects their health. They're very open-minded and willing. But I think that's a pretty small minority, to be honest. I mean, and, and, and depending on where I've been in the system, so I've run diet and lifestyle programs where people seek me out. Before they walk in the door, they know they're coming to change their diet and lifestyle. Obviously, they are at the end of the motivation spectrum. They are the most extremely motivated people. I've also just had a primary care practice where you see, I see people who want to just refill their meds and see me for belly pain or whatever. They have no awareness that I'm interested in nutrition and they walk in the door. And I have to tell you that, you know, it's only a small minority that will change their diet based on information I give them. I can tell them you can treat this with food. Here's some, here's some recipes, here's some resources, here's a food guide. I can tell them that, and only a very small percentage will do anything with that information. And so I, I've become convinced, that's why I said before, the elephant in the room is really public policy. We have to make these healthy choices relatively mindless. And until we do so, we're all swimming upstream. All the doctors in the world could be talking about it. And we're swimming upstream against the environment. You know, I, I, and this is not because I think people are, I'm not looking down my nose at people or, or people are stupid. This is, people are social creatures and we do things, we make decisions all the time. The vast bulk of our decisions are subconscious and they're based off environmental cues. And 
you know, you can look at rat experiments. <laughs> and you can look at rat experiments, for example, and um, you can create a binge eating rat that is has sort of an uncontrollable uh, appetite and overeats uh, high hyperpalatable food by changing their environment by doing nothing more than changing their environment and the and the food and when it's available in their in their environment. So people are not that different, and that's that's me, that's uh, my mm -hmm. patients, that's everyone else. So until we really get at this public policy thing and change the environment. We're swimming in an uphill battle, and the research suggests that. I mean, the research supports that. We've we can, this message of plant-based nutrition has been out for a long time now, and uh, China study has been published for 16, 16 years. It's been a bestseller. It's done very very well. There's been a there's been a lot of people who are motivated, interested, open to changing their mind, and they're excited, and they and they talk to other people about it. But you look at every single health metric of the American population, and it's gotten much worse over just the past 16 years. People are making worse choices and more unhealthy diets, less physical activity, this type of thing. So, um, you know, I, I do think that, uh, you know, we'll do, we'll do what we do what you can. We talk with work at the individual level because that's where things can happen for now. But ultimately, to really turn this around, it's going to have to be uh, – uh, much, much more beyond the sort of one-on-one -on -one conversation between doctor and patient. Yeah, and speaking of those one-on-one -on -one conversations between doctors and patients, there aren't a lot of doctors like you um, that ever even ask about nutrition. You know, I've never been to a doctor that asks me what I eat normally or, or anything like that. And part of that, you think, is um, due to the fact that, that physicians aren't really taught nutrition when they're in medical school. Yeah, physicians have very little training. The last data I saw was that they have about 20 hours of nutrition training in, in four years of medical school. That's 20 contact hours. That's not 20 credit hours or something like that. That's that's like you know less than a single sh surgery shift that I had in, in third year of medical school. And most of those hours are you know, the, learning about the Krebs cycle or protein metabolism, biochemistry. It has absolutely nothing to do with uh, say, treating diabetes with nutrition, which you think would be important. Um, so is it, there's a tremendous gap and lack of education. But the reason, the fundamental reason for that, in turn, is because, uh, you know, helping people change their behavior is a time-consuming ordeal. You don't, you don't just say, you know, tell me about your diet and then give a handout, and then people can make the biggest behavioral change of their entire life after they walk out the door. That's the research is very, that doesn't work. You need really sort of intensive behavioral programs. And, you know, then, the, then those are not well reimbursed. Uh, you know, the, the time and expertise and effort to do those are not well reimbursed. So, uh, you know, hospital systems and medical systems aren't going to give away money to do those things. And, uh, and if those are not reimbursed and no one can do it in practice, then the medical schools aren't going to teach it. Um, and you, then you, you know, see, so it's, you keep getting higher and higher on this level of why things are the way they are. And it keeps going back up to this reimbursement and, and the power structure that, you know, the profit, uh, motive of, of the current paradigm and, and how profitable it is for the people who are currently making the rules. Yeah. I was just going to add that Tom, you know, I, I've heard uh, you give this lecture a couple two or three times, actually, uh, kind of a series of slides you have. Uh, documenting uh, the recommendations from within the 
political, economic, medical system, you know, higher up authorities, and making some recommendations. Hey, well, you need, you know, for especially for physician training, if you will. You were showing us that, that each every three or four years, somebody came out with a very prominent statement. We got to pay attention to nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. You trace it all the way back, as I recall, to the 1950s or something like that. It's really kind of a comic, comical lecture in a sense. You, re you read what they said, and I'm just guessing what 1955, and then you read another statement. <laughs> and and it's, that's the way you told the story. And it's sort of, they said it was slightly different words, same message over every five or 10 years, and still the same. This is coming from authorities. Comment on that? I, I yeah, it's really, well, it's remarkable that the American Medical Association uh, has said it numerous times. The National Academy of Sciences had a whole expert panel convened uh, on this topic. There, there's been uh, debates and, and procedural, uh, you know, uh, policy presentations and stuff in U.S. Congress and White House conferences. You know, from the uh, White House to the Congress to uh, the national scientific bodies to the professional medical associations. It's been acknowledged up and down for uh, for gr the greater part of 60, 60 to 70 years that uh, nutrition is is woefully inadequately woefully inadequate in the current system and in medical training and and yet nothing has changed. <laughs> so um, you know, I, I think I think there are like I like I the hopeful part that I started with, you know, since we wrote the China study uh, 15, 16 years ago there, when we thought about interviewing some practicing doctors, Dr. John McDougall and Esselstyn, you know, they were just two of a small handful of physicians who are interested in nutrition and, and treating people with nutrition. And, you know, in the past 16 years, that has bloomed to an absolutely much, much larger number. And there are, you know, younger physicians who are very interested in nutrition and, uh, and, and more and more physicians who are getting onto this message of helping people uh, get healthy by changing their diet and lifestyle. So it is changing, but it's changing from the grassroots. Um, and it's a slow, small change still at this point without the uh, regulatory and sort of structural framework support that, that, that's necessary. Well, we are getting towards the end of our time. Uh, the one last question that I have for you both uh, is, since we've been talking about cancer, if there are people listening right now that are facing that terrifying diagnosis, what advice do you have for them? Well, I think the, he, Tom's a clinician on this one. I, I've got to be careful. When people ask me those kind of questions, always the first thing I always say, <laughs> you know, I'm not qualified, I'm not the, uh, in the medical community, I, I can't give that kind of advice. I certainly do not want to speak to individuals about their, their own specific condition. Given the state of our evidence and, re, and understanding right now, you know, cancer diagnosis is traumatic. It's profoundly, you know, anxiety-producing. Um, it's life-threatening. Uh, like I said, this isn't a twisted ankle. It's life-threatening. So. I'm an all of the above physician. Go see your oncologist, get the workup, get the right workup, see the oncologist and consider all the con conventional treatments and, um, you know, listen to your oncologist and, and uh, pursue treatments that seem reasonable and uh, of all varieties. But after you think about those things, I, you know, if it was me or a family member, man, I would be looking at nutrition as soon as I walked out the door as if my life depended on it, because even though we don't have the evidence to suggest that 
nutrition, you know, how, how, or if it may affect cancer or different types of cancer or different stages or whatever, we don't have those details, but the background research is impressive enough that again, use every tool at your disposal. And I would recommend people eat a whole food plant-based diet, you know, um, whole grains, fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, minimal to no food fragments, sugars, added fats, and uh, minimal to no animal foods, and get as strict as possible and get support and get information and, and, and really take control over that part of your life. You know, so a lot of people want that aspect of doing everything they can to improve their odds. And I think based on the background research, this is our best guess for having a substantive impact on your odds. So, you know, I think use all the, all the tools at your disposal, uh, pursue conventional therapies, uh, if that seems reasonable, but nutrition should be part of the pictures as, as well. Colin, anything you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah. Well, you know, we've had a long history thinking about these questions, obviously, you know, a couple of centuries and, and uh, we spent a lot of time doing that and figuring out things right now, in my view, we've come to the water's edge because we got two things that are looming out there. I can think of two, there's many more that are really just extraordinary problems that we have to resolve. Number one is the environment. And the recommendations have been showing that raising livestock particularly is the chief cause of climate change, number one. The other big uh, existential problem we have too is the cost of healthcare. Uh, and, the, and the amount of money that is actually spent for that is the highest in the world. Uh, it's the most spent per capita of any country in the world. And so why is it we're, we're living in a system where on one hand, we're, we're pushing the edge of the environment, probably almost about to cross a, a no return threshold. And on the other hand, we're still spending lots of money to take care of diseases in ways that we don't need to, all the while missing the central core the central core of that discussion. It's the food we eat. And in turn, it has to do with knowing something about how the way that food works. That's what I call nutrition. So it's, we got a major task in front of us, a really looming, horrific, in, in a sense, task to overcome. We better get on with it. I'm a, I'm a yeah. age now, I'm tired. I've seen enough of this, <laughs> dragging feet. Yeah, there's still so much work to be done, that's for sure. I really appreciate both of you sharing all of your insights um, with us today. Such important information for people to know. And if you're listening today and you want to know more, you can always pick up a copy of the China Study. That's my copy behind me. You can also get more information on the Center for Nutrition Studies website. Um, and I do want to mention, we talked a lot today about the ability to switch cancer on and off based on the amount of protein animal products being consumed. So in our next episode, We'll actually meet a woman who did that with her brain tumors and she watched them grow and shrink based on the amount of animal protein that she was consuming. And ultimately she talks about how she beat this aggressive form of cancer. So that is in our next episode of The Proof of Plant-Based Living. Thank you all so much for watching today. You just finished another episode of The Proof of Plant-Based Living. We hope you're feeling inspired to build a healthier life for you and your family. If you want more, you can head over to nutritionstudies.org or my website, brittanyabsher.com, for show notes and resources from today's episode. We'll see you next time.